All right, Romans 14, starting in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Pretty easy, right? Don't eat. No. <laughs> well, last Sunday we got through verse 12 of Romans 14, addressing the topic of Christian liberty. Uh, the liberty of the Roman church was being challenged in two ways. The eating of meat, as we saw last time, and also the celebration of certain holy days. And in both cases, you had two factions in the church there. You had those who were stronger in the faith and those who were weaker in the faith. Those who felt free to eat whatever and those who felt restricted and only wanted to eat vegetables. Fred's nightmare. Or we had those who wanted to celebrate any day as being as any other day and then some who wanted to celebrate certain days as being special. So this caused strife in the church. The stronger brother was looking down on the weaker brother in contempt and the weaker brother was looking at the stronger brother and passing judgment on them. So then in verses 1 through 8, Paul admonishes both groups to stop what you're doing. Stop quarreling over these things. These are matters of opinion. These are not uh, essentials to the faith. You are arguing over non-essential things. We all belong to Jesus. And it is to him that we must answer, not to each other in the matters of opinion. And that's the point, right? Our liberty in Christ isn't licensed to do whatever we want to do. And it's also not a freedom to abuse the conscience or wound the conscience of another person in the church. It goes back to what Paul said in verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. Not if we live, we live to our freedom. Okay? You know, this is not like uh, Braveheart, right? Where William Wallace sits there and cries out, Freedom! You know, that's not what we're doing here. It's not freedom for the sake of freedom. It's freedom to live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We belong to Christ now. He redeemed us, right? He bought us. We went through that last week. He bought us with His blood. He redeemed us out of slavery. And now we are His. Therefore, whatever we do, we ought to do it in honor of the Lord. Right? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. This should be a memory verse. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. 
So whether we exercise our liberty or whether we restrict it uh, to, in, in order to uh, not abuse the conscience of another, we need, we, we need to make sure that we're doing it to the glory of Christ, that that is our goal. The one who restricts his or her liberty due to, the, to a weak faith must not lord it over those as some badge of piety. So in other words, the people who are not eating meat should not think that they're more pious than the one who was eating meat. It's like, well, I restrict myself, so I'm much more holy than you are. That's kind of what was going on there. So then whether we abstain or indulge in certain non-essentials, we need to do it, as Paul says, fully convinced in his own mind. That's what he says, I believe, in verse so in verse 5. Fully convinced in his own mind. So as we come now to this passage here in 13 through 23, uh, the subject again remains the same. We're still talking about this idea of Christian liberty and the harmony between the stronger brother and the weaker brother. However, now the focus is going to shift, whereas in the first 12 verses, it was more geared toward those who are weaker in the faith, don't pass judgment. Now we're talking to the stronger in the faith. And you're going to see here that the stronger in the faith seem to get more, okay? And that seems to make sense if you think about it. If, if, you, if you are at a greater level of advancement in the faith, more should be expected from you. You should look out for the weaker brother in the faith. So that's what we're going to see here. The shift is going to focus more on the stronger in the faith. And even though we have this great liberty, Paul is going to argue you need to sort of take that into consideration to the weaker brother. Don't lord it over them. Don't flaunt your freedom. That's going to be a constant theme we're going to see through these 11 verses here. So in verse 13, we see first the principle no stumbling blocks. Don't put any stumbling blocks in front of the weaker brother. Now that word there, therefore, in verse 13, seems to bring his argument to a close from verses 1 through 12. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer to the weaker brother, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. That's to the stronger brother. So that's the conclusion. Don't pass judgment on one another. And this echoes the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, verse 1, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Judge not that you be not judged. Right? Now, people have often taken that verse and misused it and abused it. And it's like, you can't tell me what to do because you're not supposed to judge me. That's not, what he, that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what Paul is saying. What we see here, this idea of judge not that you be not judged, Jesus will go on and says, because by the measure that you use, that will be used against you. So whatever criteria you use to judge someone or anyone, that's the criteria that's going to be used back on you. And what we're going to find out is that we don't keep up with our own standards, much less the law of God, right? So if you start to add to the, to the law of God, you're going to find out you don't even meet your own standards. So don't judge another brother in Christ based on your own understanding of the faith in these idea of non-essentials. Now, does anybody remember the word we use for non-essentials? Adiaphora, right, okay. <laughs> so in the matter of non-essentials or adiaphora, we are to refrain from judging one another. Again, without restating what has already been said, we don't answer to one another when it comes to non-essentials. You cannot bind my conscience with your extra-biblical restrictions, and I cannot abuse your conscience 
with my greater or stronger faith. Now, in a word to the stronger brother, Paul says, decide, make a decision never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, I'm just trying to picture this sort of like in a silly example, but you know, if, you literally, if you took that literally and you're walking around and you see your weaker brother coming and you decide to throw a stone in his path so that the poor guy trips and falls in his face, that's kind of the idea of what Paul is getting at here. Don't do something like that. Here, this is a vital truth. Paul is encouraging the stronger brother to sacrifice your liberty for the sake of your weaker brother. While we ought not let the weaker brother be allowed to bind our conscience with his or her deficient understanding, uh, the greater responsibility falls on the stronger brother. That's the point I'm trying to get across here. The greater responsibility falls on the one who has the greater knowledge. Or to quote Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility, right? With greater knowledge comes greater responsibility. As stronger brothers and sisters in Christ, we must not exercise our liberty in such a way that causes another brother or sister to stumble. Think of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. We're not going to turn there because I'm not going to really read from it, but the idea here is the older brother had a responsibility in the home, right? The older brother should have been the one to watch out for his younger brother and also for the honor of the father, right? That's what the older brother should have done. Now, is that what the older brother does in that story? No. You don't even see the older brother until halfway through the parable when he's out working in the field and the younger brother comes home after all of this. You just know that there's two sons. But the older brother doesn't really enter into the play until the second half of the play. So not only does he not look out for his younger brother, not only does he not stand up for the family honor, he practically disowns his brother, right? When the, when the younger son comes and the father goes out to the older brother who's working in the field, and he says, come, join the celebration. And the, what does the older brother say? He says, this son of yours. He doesn't say, my brother. You know, he says, this son of yours has wasted your living and profligate living. And, and why are we throwing a party for this son of yours? He's not even his brother anymore. That's why Jesus is a better older brother. That's why Jesus is the example we should follow, not the older son in the parable, right? Jesus is the one who does go out and retrieve the younger brother, who does bring him back, and who does honor the Father's will. Now, we're going to see this a little more next week, Lord willing, when we consider what Jesus does in his, his example. But consider again in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8, through 8, where we see... Paul talking about how Jesus is an example of the type of humility we should show toward one another. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is the way you ought to think. Okay, This is the way you ought to think in regards to fellow Christians. Because though he was in the form of God, that is Jesus, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he had all of the power, all of the privilege, all of the rank, but he didn't consider it something to hold on to in, or, in order to save his, his people. He was willing to relinquish that in order to come on a rescue mission and save his people. So he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the type of mindset we should have as the stronger in the faith, toward the weaker in the faith. Jesus gave up all of his prerogatives. He had all of the freedom, all of the liberty, all of the rights, all of the privileges, yet he gave it all up to take on human flesh in order to save us. If anyone could claim privilege, it would be him. If anyone could say, I have a right to do this, it could be him. He's the very Son of God. He was the one through whom all things were made. Yet he relinquished his privileges to save stubborn, sinful wretches such as us. So if Jesus can do that for us, surely we can forego the exercise of our liberty for the sake of a weaker brother. Again, I go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 where the similar situation was playing out. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So in other words, you have a certain knowledge of the faith, but that all that does is if you have not love, all it does is just puff up your head. You have a head full of knowledge and no love towards your brother in Christ. And then dropping down to the end of that chapter in verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That's the mindset. Paul says, if what my liberty is going to cause a weaker brother in the faith to stumble in his faith, I will relinquish that liberty for his sake. He knows that food that was offered to idols is nothing and that there is no sin if I eat such meat. But Paul says he would rather relinquish that exercise of his liberty than make his brother stumble. This is just the way of love, right? This is the way of loving your brother, your neighbor as yourself. The way that Jesus forged in his own life. Put it the other way, if your attitude is, well, I'm going to eat this meat regardless of what my brother thinks. I'm going to enjoy this prime rib and I'm going to just sit there and just enjoy every bite and I'm going to, you know, while he squirms in his seat, it's like, you just need to, you need to grow up in the faith. I'm just going to eat this meat and just... Is that loving? No, right? That's a silly example, but that's not loving. I mean, can you imagine Jesus doing something like that? You know, we're, you know, in, in the other Gospels, okay, we looked at the walking across the water, right, in John's Gospel, but in Matthew's Gospel, there's a little bit added to that because Peter says, if, you, if it's really you, Jesus, call me out there and let me come to you in the sea. He says, come on out. And Peter starts walking on the sea, and he's like, this is great. And then he starts to look at the storm and the waves. It's like, all of a sudden, then he starts to sink. Now, Jesus, if he were acting like a stronger brother who thinks that it's okay to eat meat no matter what, he'd be like, get up out of the water. What are you doing? You, 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 come on. Why did you lose faith? Why did you just keep your eyes on me? He reaches out and says, come on. Yes. It's like, you have little faith, Peter. Come on, let's go. We'll get you back in the boat. You know, he, he was loving toward his brother. He was loving toward us. Jesus wouldn't act like that. Jesus would have every right to act like that, but he doesn't act like that. That would be very un-Jesus-like. But note here how Paul says this is something the stronger brother must decide, something he must make that choice in his own heart. You can't force love. Right? You can't force someone to love another or to act in a loving way toward another. You have to do that freely. Love says, I know I have this liberty to do whatever, 
but because I love you, I'm going to set aside my rights for your sake. So that's the principle in verse 13. Now we look at the practice of pursuing peace. How do we put it into practice? Well, Paul begins here by stating something for which he was persuaded in the Lord Jesus in verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but that it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now, first thing here to note about this statement is consider what an admission this would be for Paul, right? Paul was, you remember in Philippians 3, I am the Hebrew of the Hebrews as to zeal under the law. I was a Pharisee. I was a persecutor of the church. So he comes out of this Pharisaical Judaism that was very, very strict on what you ate, how you observe, make sure you tithe every little thing. I tithe my mint and my cumin and my dill and make sure I get all these things right, 10% of everything, make sure I don't eat anything, make sure I wash my hands. All the... He was very fastidious about all of these things. Yet for Paul to now say that I know that everything is clean, nothing is unclean in itself, that's a big admission for a Pharisaical Jew to make. Consider how Peter felt. You remember in Acts chapter 10 where he's lounging on, on the house, on the rooftop, and God gives him this vision, and this, this picnic cloth is unveiled, and all these uh, unclean animals are on this thing, and, and he hears the voice of God saying, Peter, take and eat. And Peter's like, no, no, Lord, I would never eat anything unclean. And Jesus says in the vision, no, take and eat. Do not call unclean what I have declared to be clean. It was very hard for Peter to overcome his own Jewishness. With the coming of Christ, the old covenant with its dietary restrictions is now obsolete. Christ fulfills all of the old covenant. It's gone. You don't need to do any of these things anymore. That's why Paul can say, I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I know that his coming makes all of these dietary restrictions obsolete. All food is clean. There are no restrictions. There is nothing here that is an issue of sin to eat. Eating meat, not eating meat, as far as Paul is concerned, is not a sin issue. It is a choice. It is a choice you make. But he goes on to say it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now again, recall in Rome you had Jews coming out of Judaism. You had Gentiles coming out of paganism. Each of them would have had their own dietary restrictions on what to eat, what not to eat. So they had all these, they're coming up with all this baggage into Christianity but what Paul is saying here is, look, it's, we're not talking about sin. Again, reiterating that. We are not talking about sin or anything central to the gospel. And that's why Paul, for a time, is willing to be sensitive to the conscience of the weaker brother. He's, this is a non-essential issue. This is adiaphora. Now, given the truth of verse 14... Paul gives us the practice in verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So if you flaunt your freedom in Christ in front of a weaker brother, and it grieves you, again I ask, is that the loving thing to do? No, it is not the loving thing to do. And look at the last half there again of verse 15 where he says, not only is your, you know, he's, where he says, um, 
By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So not only is the flaunting of your freedom not loving, it is destroying his or her faith. Your blatant disregard for the weak state of your brother's faith is an act of destruction. That's what Paul's saying here. Don't destroy what Christ is doing. We're going to see this a little later in the passage. You are tempting your brother or sister to ignore their conscience, which is not good, typically speaking. And you're making shipwreck of their faith. And moreover, Paul will say, this, this weaker brother of yours is one for whom Christ died. Just like he died for you, he died for this weaker brother. So freedom for the sake of freedom is never the right thing to do. Look at verses 16 and 17. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Christian liberty is a good thing. It is a wonderful thing to have this freedom in Christ to do things that are, that are open, you know, where basically whatever the Bible doesn't command you not to do is open for you to do, to enjoy. But not if it becomes a stumbling block for your weaker brother. Again, we need to take care and concern for the one who is weak in the faith. Because when that happens, when your exercise of your liberty causes your weaker brother to stumble in his faith, then it says here, you are not working for the kingdom. In fact, he says what you're doing gets spoken of as evil. So in other words, what you're doing is you're doing the exact opposite of what is good. Because in your exercise of what is not sin in your own mind causes someone else to stumble into sin, then that gets spoken of as evil. And that's, you're, you're causing others then to twist the good things of God, to twist freedom into a bad thing. The bottom line is the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. <laughs> right? That's not, what the, that's not what's central to the kingdom of God. It's not issues of what to eat, what not to eat, what to drink, what not to drink, what days to celebrate, so on and so forth. That is not central to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God does not center on non-essentials. Unfortunately, we see this far, far, far too often in our churches throughout history. We do make those things central. Whether that's the weaker brother judging the stronger or the stronger brother causing the weaker brother to stumble. We, we, make, we major on the minors. Is, you know, the old saying is, don't, you know, don't you know, major on the majors, not on the minors. Well, the problem is oftentimes we major on the minors. We get all worked up because of something that is so far off the target of what's central to the faith. We end up not only hurting our brothers and sisters in Christ, we end up splitting churches, and that's bad. And that's because we are sinful creatures still uh, in, in the sinful flesh. We still need to be sanctified, all of us. But what does Paul say here is central to the kingdom? He says righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you want to take a stand in the church on certain things, these are the things to take a stand on. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. This is the path of love and acceptance, verses 18 and 19. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. 
So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So if you want to be acceptable to Christ, if you want to be pleasing to God, don't make the kingdom of God rotate on your own exercise of your liberty. It's not about you. (laughs) right? The kingdom of God is not about you. It's not about your liberty. It's about peace, righteousness, enjoying the Holy Spirit. It's about the advancement of the Gospel. It's about Christ being proclaimed to all the world. Not whether or not you get to drink a beer, eat a steak, go to the movies, play cards, whatever our modern-day adiaphora. We need to voluntarily forego the exercise of our liberty to show love toward the weaker brother. And when you and your superior knowledge pursue peace and seek the edification of your brother and sister, this pleases God. And it's also a good service to Christ. So, Pursue what makes for peace in the body of Christ and for what builds up each other. Now we're going to look at this in the next point because we're going to be talking about tearing down, but think about the metaphors of the body of Christ that you see like in the book of Ephesians or in the book of 1 Peter where he, he describes the body of Christ as a temple being built up. Okay, in, in Ephesians 2, we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus as the cornerstone. So the temple of God is built up. It's upbuilding. Or in 1 Peter, we are described as living stones being built into a holy temple unto the Lord. Built up. A structure being built with stones. Yet here we go, and we're going to see how you can tear all that down in the next few verses here. So what is the payoff of all this? Well, we need to strengthen our faith. Right? Verses 20 to 23. So what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding? That's what Paul will explore in these verses. The first thing to do, or not do, is don't destroy the work of God. Verse 20. Do not, forsake, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So again, this is restating what he has said in verse 15, Right? Paul warns the stronger brother. But here the word destroy is a little different. They're synonyms. There's, not, you know, there's nothing magical here. But in verse 23, the word is kataluo, which is different than in verse 15, which apaluo. But they're synonyms. But kataluo carries the idea of demolishing, of tearing down, of, of you know, what people do to a building, right? You, know, you get the demolishers come in and they set the charges and, they, you know, and then the building just, you know, just kind of falls in on itself. He's saying, don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that in the body of Christ. Because what he says here, what are you tearing down? Do not tear down for the sake of of food the work of God. You are destroying the work of God. Each of us, from the moment that we were regenerated by the Holy Spirit and until the time Christ returns or takes us home, we are a work of God. Right? Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship. That word is poema. You get the word poem. <laughs> now I've heard you know, people go off on that, but the thing, you know, we are God's craftsmanship. We are, we are being built by God through the Holy Spirit. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now each of us, not just here, but if you think, if you think of the body of Christ as a whole you know, throughout the world, each of us comes from different walks of life, 
We each come out of different situations, different backgrounds, different all kinds of things. And we each, when we come into the faith, we each progress at different rates, at different paces, right? And those of us who have grown in the faith need to take care that we do not tear down another of God's works in progress. We're all of God's, we're all works in progress. Even the stronger brother in the faith is a work in progress because how many people here think you're going to hit perfection in this life? No one, right? We, there's always more to know. The Word of God is always revealing something new if you have eyes to see it. We are all works in progress, but we shouldn't, for the sake of our own freedom, destroy another of God's works in progress because they're pursuing, they're, they're progressing at a rate that is not what I want it to be or what someone else wants it to be. And we especially should not do that, as Paul says here, for the sake of food. Of all the things, of all the things to destroy somebody's faith over is food. All right, or think of it again in our own context. What would be some of today's adiaphora? Don't destroy another of God's works because you watch certain, you want to watch certain movies, or because you want to play cards, or because you want to drink beer, or whatever. It's not worth it, is what Paul is saying. Don't do this, especially for the sake of a non-essential. And it really just comes down to this: What is the hill on which you want to die? Do you want to be there stubbornly holding forth for your freedom and your ability to exercise it whenever you want, regardless of the consequences? Is that the hill you want to die on? Are you willing to damage a weaker brother's progress in faith to eat prime rib? Or to drink a bush light? <laughs> or to play poker? <laughs> Is your Christian liberty worth that much? We have to remember, love is giving of yourself to meet the needs of another. And that sometimes may mean to relinquish a liberty or freedom or privilege you have. True that there is nothing unclean, but it is wrong to encourage someone to violate their conscience before it has had the time to be properly informed. Therefore, in verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. This is a good thing. That's what he says. It is good. It is qualitatively good to relinquish your or limit your freedom for the sake of the weaker brother. Again, the body of Christ is about building up, not tearing down. You don't want to tear down that work. You want to build it up. You want to strengthen it. And we'll get to that in a moment. But Jesus is building us up. The Holy Spirit is building us up. And we don't want to be working against that labor by tearing down. Now, we looked at it a little bit earlier, but again, I think it's helpful to consider 1 Corinthians chapter 8, this time verses 9 through 12. We're there, again, similar situation, but Paul writes there, but take care that this right of yours to exercise your Christian liberty does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, he will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Again, similar situation in Rome here in case of Corinth. 
they were arguing or disputing over whether or not you can eat meat offered to idols that had been offered to idols. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, you know, this meat was used in a pagan practice offered to their god, but, you know, those idols, which are nothing, the gods don't eat the food, right? So the food is left over, so it gets sold on the market, and then, you know, a well-meaning Christian comes, oh, hey, look, there's a, there's a sale on steaks today at the, at the local market. I'm going to pick me up some. And then, you know, your brother who was just there, who comes out of paganism, says, that was offered on the idol of so-and-so. And you're like, I didn't know that. It's like, okay, you know, <laughs> that was the idea. Some who knew their liberty in Christ and others coming out of paganism who weren't sure. This is a similar situation as in Rome. But if your liberty causes another to damage their fragile faith, thereby wounding their conscience, you are sinning against Christ. So, again, now remember we said it's not good to... You know, when you exercise your freedom, what is good then gets spoken of as evil. Now it's even worse because if you cause your brother to stumble, Paul says here, you're doing something that's good, but it becomes sin against Christ because you're causing your brother to stumble. Now we've used this word many times, but haven't quite defined it. That's the word conscience. The Greek word is sunedesis, in case you're very interested in that. I'm sure you're writing that all down. But it generally speaks of one's ethical sense, one's innate discernment, or or a self-judging consciousness. I like to think of your conscience as sort of like an alarm system, okay, that that goes off when you do something that violates your conscience. So your conscience, your moral code is sort of like the operating system of your conscience. It's it's what makes the conscience go. So if you violate your moral code, code, your conscience says, warning, warning, you are violating your moral code. Sort of like, you know, if you've watched Lost in Space, you know, warning, Will Robinson, you are violating your moral code. Now, the conscience is only as good as the moral system that informs it, right? If you don't think it's wrong to murder, I'm using a very weird example, but if you don't think it's wrong to murder, then when you start to kill somebody, your conscience isn't going to go off. But the answer is not to go against conscience, but to reprogram it. That's the idea. Don't violate your conscience. Your conscience may be wrong. It may be too sensitive, but don't violate it. It needs to be reprogrammed. You reprogram it through the Word of God. Now, if you go against conscience too much, you can actually damage it. Paul talks about it in one of the letters to Timothy. He talks about the one who has seared his conscience. That is, you, you, you know, the war... So it's like, okay, I'm guilty of this. If you're guilty of this, you don't have to admit it, but... In the morning, my alarm goes off, I hit snooze. Okay. Sometimes it goes off a second time, I'll hit snooze again, maybe even a third time, and then all of a sudden I'll fall asleep and I'll just sleep through my alarm. Okay. Has anybody done that? You don't have to admit it if you don't want to. Because I, I, I know you all have at, at some point. <laughs> but here, you know, if you, all of a sudden you're, you become sort of, you, you don't hear the alarm anymore. That's the point. Paul says if you violate your conscience too much, you can sear it. It becomes useless. It becomes calloused, hardened. But if you reprogram the conscience with the word of God, it begins to function properly. So then Paul continues in verses 22 and 23. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So to the stronger brother, 
you don't need to alter or change your convictions, okay? You don't need to, to feel like in the case of eating meat. You don't need to feel that's wrong in order to accommodate your weaker brother. All right, so you don't need to alter your convictions because what you have, he says here, keep between yourself and God. If you feel no reason, if you feel like what you're doing is not sin and you have no reason to pass judgment on yourself for what you approve, then you are blessed. If you are convinced that your freedom is not sin, you are blessed. But as we've seen before, freedom of conscience is not a freedom of license to wound the conscience of the weaker brother. And really, the the crux of the matter here is in verse 23. If we do something out of doubt and without conviction, it is sin. So if your weaker brother is not fully convinced that it is right to eat meat yet, again, using the examples here, we can substitute that with anything else in today's day and age. But if your weaker brother is not yet convinced that it's wrong to eat or it's okay to eat meat and he starts to eat it, It could be sin for him because he's not fully convinced in his own heart. He needs to strengthen his faith because he says here, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So how do you get your weaker brother to to get to the point where he recognizes that liberty is okay? You strengthen his faith, right? You come alongside your brother. You you work with them to, to learn, both of you, from the Scriptures to know what is wrong, what is not wrong, what is okay, what is allowed, what is... You know, and, and to strengthen that faith. And it may mean we need to curtail our freedom for a time, but it's a small price to pay for a brother and a sister in Christ so that you don't cause them to stumble. Well, that's it for Romans uh, 14, 13 to 23. Uh, next time, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday, the 11th, We will start looking at uh, chapter 15. I have here that we're going to look at the first 13 verses. So you guys are already smiling because you know that there's a chance we might not get through all 13. That's my goal. We'll see how far I get.